You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It is November 11th. I've got a great show for you this week. Before I get into the show, nitty-gritty details, I was right. Just wanted to say it. I was right. I called this motherfucker last year. No way Romney or Mormon will ever see the White House. Now, I'm a realist, and... Eventually, I'm sure there'll be a Mormon president. But, not Romney, not this time. And they were so sure about themselves, weren't they? They were so sure, and there's still people whining and crying about it. Now, I can't say that I'm thrilled that Obama won, to be honest. Um, If history is any guide, as I said before, the second term of a president is much more um, productive than the first. So let's hope that that's the case. <laughs> hope. Uh, but I was right, so you're, you're going to get the regular nine cents today, not the Jesus Saves episode. <laughs> Even though some of you have asked me to do it anyway. I'm not going to. <laughs> but yeah, man, uh, it, it's, uh, it's nice. It's nice to know that we aren't going to have an insane, um, real shitty businessman like... Uh, Romney in the White House makes me feel good, warm in the cockles of my heart, (laughs) the cockles of my cockle, (laughs) good stuff, all right, so enough of that, Tribe After Dark is a, uh, it's sort of a, a division of Tribe Comics, and they're the ones putting out that comic I spoke to you last week about called Cross, we're getting a little bit closer day by day to the release of this bad boy, and uh, Pretty excited to bring it to you. So you can actually already, right now, go to the Facebook page for Tribe Comics, which is just Tribe Comics, or you can go to the Tribe After Dark page, which is uh, facebook.com, Tribe After Dark. There's not a whole lot of details there on either of them, but those are the places that you're going to want to go to to get information as it's released. And it's going to be, I mean, let me tell you a little bit about the, the story here. So this nun was cursed to roam the night as a demon. And this demon is a very, uh, well, it's a hermaphrodite. Um, a, a female hermaphrodite. I don't know, I mean, are there, there are more masculine hermaphrodites, I think? I don't, I, maybe I'll have to Google it when no one's around <laughs> to find out. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a female, um, demon running around ripping people's heads off and uh, that's during the night and during the day she's a very uh, conservative nun but she gets caught up in uh, obviously the murders she gets caught up and she has no idea she's doing it this is all blind to her Um, she gets caught up in sort of the underworld of the area as it were because of her actions and it's 
you know, we have a lot of story. It can go for quite a number of series. Um, this first part is like a four-parter, and then we'll probably do an origin story to it, and then we'll probably redo the uh, everything for the, the first, you know, four episodes. Uh, and it all depends, obviously, on the welcome it gets by the readers and uh, how well it's disseminated and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just another project I'm kind of excited about. All I'm doing really is writing this story and giving minimal critique, but the uh, the creatures, uh, the the story is very much my own, and so uh, that's why I'm pretty excited about it. And I really like the guys over at Tribe Comics. They're, they're you know, salt-of-the-earth type guys. And then today is Veterans Day, so happy Veterans Day to all of you veterans. And, uh, yeah, this is what, it's always tough for me. You know, we put up the flag outside, and it's really snowy outside, so this is sort of stark contrast of red stripes and this blue field of stars and the snow as a backdrop, so it really punches the flag uh, right out at you. It's actually really beautiful. But I always get, and I've, I've talked about this before, I always get, you know, it's a little misty-eyed thinking about it. I I tried to go back into the military and they rejected my ass because of asthma, and um, it, it was it was tough because I left, and I think most people when they finish their contracts with the military and they leave, it's because they want to go do something else. And for me, I wanted to go do some graphic design work. I wanted to go to college, and and so I've done that. And I, I like my job and I like what I do, but I it it doesn't have the significance that. I experienced when I was a soldier and the pride that I felt when I said when someone asked me what I did and I would say well I'm a soldier there was there was some authority there and not in their eyes but in mine like I, I felt like it was it was meaningful much more than what I'm doing now because it's very superficial commercial advertising stuff so you know, I whenever Veterans Day comes around or Memorial Day or Fourth um, of July or any national holiday, really, I sort of fall back to this dreamy state where I I get all, uh, really really emotional. I feel because I'm a I'm a fit person. I'm capable of serving my country if it weren't for the asthma that I have, and. Uh, I feel like there's something I should be doing more than I am to deserve everything that I have in this country. And that's why, you know, there's not a lot of Satanists that, that put pride in their country over over themselves, but I'm one of them that does, and not not over myself, that's not right, but I put a healthy amount of legitimacy in pride in my country because I have a, a history and family that serves and and because I served in, I don't know, it, it means something different when you're a part of it. And it's something that I very much miss. And I, I hate seeing people going off to war and fighting and, and dying and knowing that I can do it and I'm not. You know, I, I don't know. It's it's just one of those things where I, I, always, I don't want to die. Obviously, I cherish my life that I have... And I feel very lucky, but because of that uh, fortune that I have earned, I feel like I should 
I should work a little more for it. Um, and, you know, I use that as drive in these personal projects that I do, and it keeps me busy, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I miss it. I miss being a soldier and, and what it meant to me being a soldier and the sacrifices that I had to make to be the soldier. And uh, I respect all of you who do it and all of you who are going to do it because it's not easy and it's not fun all the time. But there are moments, you know, there really are moments and there's an honor involved that you don't get from flinging burgers or uh, making magazine ads like I do. So anyway, I wanted to speak to that for a little bit. Uh, happy Veterans Day, everyone. Let's talk about this show. In The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be talking about Married to the Non-Satanic Part 2. Now, I actually talked about this last year in the 23 October episode. Uh, and I, I talked about uh, being married to someone who is not a Satanist and, you know, what it means to be in that relationship and stuff. Well, I got an email from a listener, and thank you very much for sending it in. And she's asked me to go into a little bit more detail about it. Uh, she might not listen to that first one. So if you haven't, go to last year's RSS feed on the website and look up the 23rd October issue or episode, and you'll get that. But I'm going to go into uh, some, some points that she made that I think are interesting and maybe I didn't touch on enough or at all in the last episode. Uh, so we're going to do that again, Married to the Non-Satanic Part 2. In Infernal Informant, Mitch McConnell, we have a voter mandate not to raise taxes. Was he watching the same, the same election I did? <laughs> and Finding the Courage to Reveal a Fetish. Little relationship article. Love it. And also, at the end of the show, not even the end, it's like more like the second half of the show, Episode 5 of Down to the Crossroads with Aaron, Blood Ran Like Wine. Very good one and very uh, Veterans Day centric, so look forward to that in the second half of the show. So, uh, you know, how about we just uh, kick it off with Devil's Advocate, a little bit of a marriage discussion right now. Say why bother? How you done, great? Let's cut the bullshit and get real. Why this purity you feel about evil? For Christ's sake, why? It don't lie to me. I guess, father. You gotta feel that old nick in your soul, and it becomes clear. Like it did for me, the first time. That's when I realized my one true calling in life. And what's that? Shit, man. <laughs> I'm a born devil's advocate. Welcome to the devil's advocate. I'm a Satanist. I'm a member of the Church of Satan. But I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Married to the Non-Satanic Part 2. 
didn't even realize it was going to be a two-parter, <laughs> but I'm stoked that it that it is. Uh, pretty cool uh, questions that I got on this subject. So I'm going to sort of do this like a Q&A. I'm going to read the question and then address it. There's some overlap with the last episode and with each question. So, you know, hopefully you're, you're all going to uh, glean a little bit of information from this. And remember that this is just my experience and I can't really speak to other people. So uh, here we go. How much do people share with their significant others? And how is it received in dating or longer term relationships? Very uh, personal question because obviously everyone's understanding of Satanism the first time they're introduced to it is different. And it's going to absolutely be partially colored by who is delivering it. So if I can tell you, I mean, I wasn't in a, a romantic relationship or anything, but, you know, obviously you have a relationship with your family, your parents. So when I when I outed myself to them, they, even though they knew me, and I would like to have thought that they respected me and my decision-making ability, they were stunned and it really tore the whole family apart. And it's never quite been the same. So I'm, I'm a big fan of honesty. And I got to... Be honest when I tell you that that's not always the best policy. I mean, there's certain situations that dictate we have to lie or else someone's, you know, is going to just be hurt emotionally. Relationships, however, when you go into a relationship, only you and that other person are going to know how, how serious that relationship is. And hopefully you're talking openly about it so that you're both on the same page. But you're going to know when it's safe for you to out yourself, as it was, uh, to that other person. And it has to be, <laughs> it's got to be before you do anything really serious. Because you don't really want to make those serious decisions like marriage or, um, uh, you, you know, s consistently dating without really knowing the other person. I mean, it's okay to go on a date here and there and have fun, but if you're going to start getting into sex, well, I'm hoping that you're doing that because you really, really appreciate that person as an individual and not just because you want a little tail, though in reality, that's probably more the case. So I would say that if you've had more than a handful of dates and you're comfortable with them and you, you're able to sit down and not have to say anything, when you're having dinner, there's not this pressure, then maybe that's a good time for you to, and you know, and, and obviously when you're sharing um, intimate details about yourself, that's a good time to bring it up, you know, and, and you don't have to, uh, obviously, you know, how you bring it up is a whole nother subject, but uh, if I can touch on it briefly here, be honest and, and don't be weird about it, because there's nothing weird about it. You're Satanist. That's something to be proud of, not to hide. Now, obviously, you know, you're in a relationship with the person because you love them, or you're, you're really digging them at the moment, and you can see that you're going to be with them for some time, so you want to share your life with them. I'm sure there's some people who never divulge their real inner feelings as far as Satanism with their... Um, a significant other but for me I think it's I think it's mandatory and I told my wife now when we were dating um, 
obviously, you know, she goes in my room and, you know, she sees my satanic Bible. Uh, later, she would come to the apartment and she would see a sigil of Baphomet hanging up. And, you know, so she was exposed to to my worldview early on and often because I didn't hide it. And now this also speaks to your personal aesthetic because if if you look stereotypical, um, you know, dark and uh, depressed and evil and, you know, whatever you want to define it as, well, then the, the person that's into you is probably going to be a little less stunned by something like that. But if you're, you know, strutting around in a, a, a church dress or a bow tie, uh, you know, w- and, and you're courting this other person, well, then maybe they're going to freak out a little bit more because the perception of what Satanism is, though it's much clearer now than it ever has been in its history, is still pretty vague to people who haven't explored it or it's just not on their individual radar, you know? So, you know, the bottom line for that question is, in my opinion, be honest with someone that you're willing to have a mature relationship with early and often. Not just about your religion, not just about your point of views on life, and not just about sexual proclivities. Always be honest with them. Because if you're not, it's going to come back and it's going to bite you in the ass at some point. And there's no reason to put off tomorrow what you can do today. It's my opinion on the matter anyway. So, uh, next question, what are people's experiences with dating or being in a long-term relationship with someone from another belief system? Well, for me, my... Um, we were both raised as Mormon. I broke off very early on, and I would later um, physically remove my name from their records. But she never really went to that length. So I guess on paper she still is a Mormon, even though she doesn't believe in any of that. Um, so she doesn't she doesn't necessarily believe that there's a God, but she definitely believes in spirits to some degree, and she definitely believes in... Um, uh, higher power. So, you know, and this is something I touched on last episode last year. We are the alien elite. We are a minority. And to expect someone else to be on the same page with you with Satanism is unrealistic. And that's not Satanic at all, to be unrealistic. So if you're a Satanist, then you realize that you, you are, you know, rare out there and and others aren't going to be like you and that you're probably going to fall in love with someone that's not a satanist and there's nothing wrong with that because they are their own individual and you are your own individual you know you don't define yourself by the people that you uh, connect with you define your relationship with the people you connect with not yourself and and knowing that distinction can be tough at times but it's really important You don't ever, and this is just, you know, to a larger conversation about a healthy relationship versus a dependent relationship. You have to be able to stand on your own two feet in a relationship, and if the situation dictates, stand your ground and do not budge. And more often than not, the situation dictates that you have a healthy enough ego that you're able to compromise with the person that you respect and love. So, uh, with that in mind, it doesn't matter if they're a different belief system. Because you're not, you know, um, solipsism, you're not projecting onto them what they should be experiencing. You're you're taking them for who they are. And if part of who they are is a Catholic, or if part of who they are uh, is a belief in God, 
whether that's the Islamic, Judeo, Christian, uh, whatever definition you want to apply to that, or just none at all. Maybe they're pagan, you know? It doesn't matter. It, it should not be a factor that threatens a relationship, because if it is, then it's not a healthy relationship in the first place. And, and this may also speak to a larger narrative that we can connect quite easily on the micro level with other human beings. Not just we as in Satanists, but we as in human beings. With others in the world. It's easy to connect on the micro level. But if you're going to get married, if you're going to spend the rest of your life with someone, hopefully if you're going to have a, a healthy, mature sexual connection with someone, it's going to be based on more than that micro whatever it is. Uh, sports or knitting or, you know, whatever. There has to be a, a, a broader platform that you both stand on than just a belief system. And I say just a belief system because when you're together, that doesn't really matter that much. What matters is your experiences that you're having together. So if that means that you have to suck it up and go to a, a church meeting with them, you're going to have to be the one to make that call based on your relationship. But that may be a reality for you. Um, if they're really religious, you know, if they really just want to do that. As long as they're not trying to turn you into something that you're not. Because again, that's not healthy and you don't want to be a part of that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people out there. There's not a lot of healthy relationships out there. So when I'm speaking to this, it's very much best case scenario. And that's not the reality that we live in all the time. So, you know, one experience is not going to translate well to the next. But long-term relationship, um, I, I have one with my wife. And we drastically see different in some aspects of uh, the universe, as it were. And uh, very similar in others. She's very much more of an atheist um, nowadays than she ever has been. And I don't think it's because of me. I think it's more just, you know, she's growing up and she's getting to that in her own pace, in her own time, like everyone does. As some people never do. Um, and for me, I, I love her for her. I, I don't love her because she believes in something that I don't, like ghosts. I, I don't love her because she has never removed herself from a Mormon, you know, religious uh, roster. That's not who she is. You know, that's one tiny little notch in, in the belt that she wears as a persona. So it, it doesn't really matter that much <laughs> belief systems. You, you have to realize that we, we, are, we are rare and that's a good thing because we're gems and we have to understand that the rest of the world is going to be their own way and we either work with it or we work against it but it's healthier to just if you're going to connect on that mature level with someone accept them for who they are and the belief system means less than anything okay so the next question how does this work out when planning a wedding or raising children well that's a good question and again very very personal for us with raising children, we're very much on the same page, but we also have to realize that a religion and raising children, they're not the same thing. And certainly planning a wedding, though there are religious connotations and there are satanic, uh, a satanic wedding sort of mapped out um, 
uh, as it exists and there's very much obviously other religious weddings but that's a decision that you have to be able to have with that other person and if you are not comfortable coming out as a satanist but you do deeply love that person well then maybe you have to bite the bullet and and give them the wedding that they want and let me give it just a little side note here if you're a man and I'm talking in traditional sense of the word here. If you're a man, then you're going to give your wife whatever marriage, or I'm sorry, whatever wedding she wants in the first place because you love her and you want to give her that because that's a huge part of maturing as a, a woman in, in a lot of the world. It's it's that that dream of finding that person that you connect with and then connecting legally with them through the ceremony. That's That's a huge ritual no matter what religion you're in. So why would you want to rob someone of that if if they have if they place a larger value on it than you do? Now, that's just, you know, on a man's stance in my opinion, give your wife whatever wedding she wants because this is her day, not yours. You're going to get the honeymoon. <laughs> Literally. So let her have whatever it is. And if it's a satanic wedding and you're not a satanist, you know what? Bite the fucking bullet and be a man. And if it's uh, she's a Christian and you're not. It's one day. It doesn't mean you can't be a Satanist anymore. It just means that she got what she wanted and she will pay you back <laughs> tenfold. <laughs> and with raising children, like I said, it's not the same thing equating religion and ethical living. Religion and ethics have been muddled together, but they are not one and the same. Uh... And, and it's also very much dependent on the uh, culture that you live in. So, you know, you can't really say, well, my 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 man or my woman is a uh, ex-religion and I'm a Satanist, so we can't raise children the same way. Well, both, no matter who you are, you want your children to be independent, strong. You want them to be able to respect you enough to listen when you're speaking, but also strong enough to call you when you're full of shit. That's important. And, you know, you have to let them know that you're a human being too. You're not a super person. So you're not always going to be right as, an, as a parent. You're not. That's a reality we all have to face. And here, here's another one that I actually have spoken to Satanic Parenting in another episode too. Um, you do not own your children. You created them and you are raising them. They are not an extension of you. You do not own them. So the best you can do is give them a realistic worldview when they are mature enough to handle it and support them when they succeed and support them when they fail. But you have to let them fail. And that's any religion. Now, we live in a, a, a much different society nowadays where that message doesn't resonate as strongly. We always want to get involved, and it's like helicopter parenting where you're always over your kid. Oh, don't get hurt. Don't bump your knee. Don't play in the dirt. Get your hand out of your mouth. You know, you have to allow your kids some slack, or else they're always going to be kids. And the point of raising your children is that they're going to turn into strong, independent adults, <laughs> no matter what religion you're in. So that should not affect it. Uh, religion should not affect raising children because it's a completely different monster. <laughs> and yes, it, it is a monster. I've got two of my own. Uh, okay, and so has anyone successfully married, say, a serious Catholic? I can't speak to that. I think it's a great question. And I would I would argue that 
you know, your definition of a serious Catholic is going to vary slightly, but if you mean someone who toes the line on all uh, mandates as a Catholic, they wouldn't be married to a Satanist because they wouldn't be able to get over that hump. Um, it, I, I, I think of something as when you apply serious in front of any religion, it becomes a disease. Religions are guidelines. They're not supposed to run your life. They're sort of ways that you help not only define who you are, but help define your worldview. But it is not something that you have to uh, allow dominance in your life. And that's when you say, oh, I'm a serious Catholic. Well, that means that you believe in some really insane things that's not reality-based. And no Satanist um, is going to be accepted by someone who sees them as going straight to hell and a horrible individual because they don't understand them. So could there be a case where a serious Catholic would open their eyes and see what Satanism really is and not what they've been taught it is? Well, yes. And in that case, they could have a very healthy relationship. But the Catholic's view of what a Satanist is and the reality of what a Satanist is are completely different. So, you know, it, it really depends on your definition of serious and whether or not that individual is able to see truth or not. And then the last uh, bit of this was when in a relationship do people come out and how often is it with disastrous results? Well, again, this would be um, <clears throat> this would be a, a questionnaire, you know, large scale that I can't really speak to. I can tell you personally, again, yes, going back to the very first part of this entire discussion, come out, be honest about who you are with the person that you're willing to spend your life with, or at least some significant amount of time, and if you're willing to come out and if you're willing to be honest whether they accept you or not they will respect you and that's important as a human being I, I think is being able to not only earn the respect of others because of you just being a good human fucking being but you know the, the ability to respect something that you don't agree with because it's done in a an adult serious uh or humorous as the case may be um but but rational way you know i mean we have to be, i i certainly don't agree with um you know let's just say my wife's uh, view with with ghosts again but i respect her i respect her views you know she came to that understanding in her way and i came to my understanding in my way and we are completely different individuals and so that shouldn't matter so disastrous results i am sure that there has been disastrous results um in relationships when you've come out uh, you know that's just sort of expected but that's not always just with religion that's with finances that's with you shouldn't have been together in the first place because you have an unhealthy relationship over dependency over protectiveness abusiveness um uh, cheating you know i mean it, it, there's a whole host of reasons that you could separate more and that people more often separate than religion as the cause so again i i hope this helped in any of my ranting or i hope it was interesting for you to listen to um and these are just again these are my perspectives this is not uh n this is not necessarily representing any view that the church of satan uh, or satanists themselves 
must hold or do hold or should hold or anything like that. That's this is just me and how I see it. And uh, you know what? It's it's to me a rational way of seeing things. And uh, yeah, I hope you like it. Let's go ahead and move on to the infernal informant. This is the Wall Street Journal. Mitch McConnell, we have a voter mandate not to raise taxes. The Senate Minority Leader on Obama's victory, the fiscal cliff, and the folly of Thelma and Louise economics by Stephen Moore. In the wake of the President Barack Obama's electoral victory, gleeful Democrats believe that the impending fiscal cliff has Republicans trapped into a finale accepting higher uh, tax rates. But as Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who looks a lot like a turtle, sits for an interview in his Capitol office 48 hours after the election, one thing is certain. He's in no way chastened by Tuesday's results. If Mr. Obama wants fiscal hand-to-hand combat, he's going to get it. Let me put it very clearly, says the five-turn Republican senator from Kentucky. I'm not willing to raise taxes to turn off the sequester, period. On January 1st, Washington faces both a huge tax increase and an automatic spending cut known as the sequester, which could tip the economy back into recession. A newly emboldened President Obama is likely to take his soak the rich case straight to the people. I remind the senator, the political pressure to capitalize uh, could become intense. Look, he may think it would be helpful for his presidency to continue to divide and demonize us, says Mr. McConnell, but my answer will still be short and firm, no. We won't agree to any tax increases that will hurt the economy. This isn't to say that next week, when the lame duck congressional session begins to negotiate some kind of budget solution, taxes are off the table. McConnell is a realist. Republicans are willing to be flexible on raising revenues, but, he hastens to add, only in the context of broad-based comprehensive tax reform. He opens to prying more out of the rich by closing tax loopholes, but he and his caucus of 45 Republicans want lower, not higher, rates. Two years ago, Mr. McConnell notes Mr. Obama agreed to extend all the Bush-era tax cuts for two years. The president's explanation for doing so was that raising taxes would harm the economy. That logic still stands, the senator says. The economy is actually growing slower now than it was then. The tax matter could quickly turn into another another political standoff similar to the one in the summer of 2011 over raising the debt ceiling. White House spokesman Jay Carney said Friday that the president will veto any bill that includes an extension of the Bush tax rates for anyone making more than $250,000, precisely the rates Mr. McConnell says he won't allow to rise. It isn't at all certain that Mr. McConnell and the House Speaker John Boehner will be able to hold their troops together. The senator understands that Mr. Obama will try to cut a deal with other senators. Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, Susan Collins of Maine, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, but Mr. McConnell doubts that the tactic will work. We have differences on other issues, but on taxes, I can't think of a single member of my conference from Maine to Texas who thought he would sent here to Washington to raise taxes on anybody or anything. So how should the president prevent another gridlocked negotiation that ends in a fiscal cliff leap? The smart way forward, Mr. McConnell said, is pretty 
Simple. Let's extend the current rates for another year for everyone. A bridge. And get busy working on that comprehensive tax reform that we need to do. There's bipartisan support for that. I asked him about the recent counter-proposal by Democratic Senator Charles Schumer that Republicans should abandon tax reform of the kind that passed in 1986 and lowered rates in return for fewer loopholes, and instead should both close loopholes and keep tax rates high to lower the deficit. He's on another planet, Mr. McConnell replies, and doesn't seem to be kidding. Would Republicans accept the liberal dream of a value-added tax as a new revenue machine? There won't be any new tax. It's not going to happen in this Congress, he says. What is clear about the coming tax cliff negotiation is that Mr. McConnell doesn't trust the White House after the debacle of the debt ceiling non-solution in July 2011. All right, hold on a second. I got to interrupt this really quick because that was the Tea Party. That they refuse, and and this sort of stance he's taking on, I will not raise taxes no matter what. That is. It's childish. Adults compromise. We are at historic low tax rates. I know everyone freaks out that, oh my gosh, they're so high. But under Clinton with the booming economy, they were higher. Under Reagan, the standard bearer of the Republican Party, they were much higher. So you can't be standing here and saying that our incredibly low tax rates and continuing what was supposed to have been a temporary tax lapse for people is a tax increase because it's not it's going back to what was working before and let's let's remember that we are in a war right now we are in a an actual war in another country and we're talking about keeping taxes low and getting them lower how are we paying for this i thought you were supposed to be the conservatives you turtle looking motherfucker all right sorry The Speaker and I sent an endless amount of time in the first half of 2011 trying to get the President to do what we all know has to be done if we're going to save the country, Mr. McConnell says. Until we adjust the entitlement programs to fit the demographics of today's America, you can't fix the problem. You can't cut taxes your way out of it. I'm sorry, you can't tax your way out of it. You can't cut health care providers as a way out of it. But Democrats laughed at those ideas even when we offered a quarter trillion of high revenues largely taken from high-income people. That's because they weren't realistic and they weren't real. Here's, here's what the problem is. The reason why we can't afford Social Security was because the Bush administration stole the incredible uh, source of income that existed there. They had more money than they needed in Social Security. But as soon as we went into Iran, I'm sorry, into Iraq, they stole that money from your grandparents and your parents and mine. And we're paying for it. And now they're saying that, oh, we just don't have the money to cover the promises that we've made. Our money that we put into the program. Yeah, okay, they did it to, you know, I don't know, prove a point overseas with uh, um, Iraq. I don't, I don't, I still don't understand why we went into, into there and why we raided Social Security in order to pay for it and why we sold uh, our economy off to China and Norway and Saudi Arabia to cover the cost of it. But we did. Okay, so we just have to work under those uh, circumstances. And we have to realize that it wasn't a Democratic president who did that. It was a Republican president who stole your money. 
So when they talk about entitlement programs as if we're just having our hands out saying, oh, please, may I have some more, like an Oliver or something, this was our money that they took from us. Our money. It's in called an entitlement because we put the money into the system, so we are owed the money back. That's the whole point of the system. Ugh, taxing our way out of it. The reason why we have to tax our way out of it is because you stole our fucking money. Like, don't you understand that? So yes, yes, we have to readjust the way our social security system works. Okay, that's a reality that we've had to face for a decade or more. I mean, we it's always been in the mail and we knew that check was going to come. So yes, we have to do it. And what we're doing is incredibly, you know, just incrementally raising the uh, age of uh, qualifying for Social Security. But to, to look over and say, oh, well, they're cutting healthcare providers as a way to pay for it. Bullshit. And he knows that that's a fucking lie. All they're doing is cutting... Uh, 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 okay, so now I'm stammering and I can't damn remember my point in the middle of a rant. Um... Uh, you know, double downing on price. So, uh, if you're a hospital and an x-ray costs X, you charge Y. And so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of overcharging and just real thievery going on in the system. So what they did was they removed it. And so that's stealing or is that cleaning house? I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. It sounds a lot like cleaning house. Okay, but Democrats laughed at uh, these ideas even when they were offered a quarter trillion of higher revenues, largely taken from higher income people. Uh, bullshit. Will things be different in Obama's second term with a president who last month said he would do whatever is required to avoid sequestering? Uh, even <clears throat> walk Mitch McConnell's dog if necessary? The missing person. The guy who was AWOL in 2011 is still the president. I think a good starting place in trying to figure out how to go forward is for the president to have an epiphany. I get the impression that he doubts the epiphany will come soon. It's funny because it's easy to say um, that the president should come up with the solution, but it's your job to come up with the solution. It's your job as the Congress. Don't act like some like because he's president, he has to solve all the problems. He's commander-in-chief dealing with a war. Let him focus on that. And as any leader should do, and certainly when I was a leader uh, in the military and uh, in, in my family, I look to those that I assume are in their position because they are competent to do the job that they were hired to do. And that means you, McConnell, were hired to work with the other members of Congress in a bipartisan way, or else it wouldn't be working with other members of Congress, in order to come up with a solution. That's your job. So you can talk shit about whoever the president is at whatever time you want, but it is your responsibility to come up with the solution and just looking to Obama as if, you know, whatever he said, he's been absent in 2011. Maybe there was something he was working on. Maybe he trusted you to do your job so that he could do his job. You ever think of that? Obviously not, because you're a fucking retarded turtle who should get his ass run over. That's my opinion. If you haven't gathered by now, Mitch McConnell doesn't have a chummy relationship with Barack Obama. He's a hero in a half shell. How could he? 
These two argue. These two aren't going to sit down for a drink and swap stories as Ronald Reagan and his political adversary Tip O'Neill did when the Gipper occupied the White House. I asked the senator how many times he's been to the White House in the past year and a half. Uh, not once, he says. But then an aide reminds him that he went briefly for one meeting. After the 2011 budget negotiations broke down, Mr. McConnell says the president just checked out and hit the trail. I'm sorry, the campaign trail. What's also evident from our conversations is that Mr. McConnell and his uh, colleagues don't trust the president and his underlings, even in closed-door meetings. He was never serious in 2011 about solving the debt problem. What happened was that the president set a crossbar so high on taxes that he knew we couldn't get a deal. Did Mr. Obama intentionally sabotage the deal? Sure, it was clear to me in retrospect that the whole strategy for re-election was to energize his liberal base. That's bullshit, because he lost a lot of independent liberals and democratic liberals because he was trying to work with you too hard. They didn't want him to. His constituency did not want him to. And I was one of those people that voted for him last time. And I wanted him to fight for what I see as a progressive agenda. And that means returning to successful tax rates. Period. It's not insanity. It's a proven in history. Return to the rates that were successful. And that is what he wanted to do when he came into office. And that's what he didn't do because of assholes like Mr. Turtleface here. Ugh! It is, it's infuriating because... And it makes me really seem like I'm championing the president, but I'm not. I'm trying to champion rational thinking and compromise, which is what us as adults are supposed to do in life. It's children on the playground in the sandbox that don't compromise. No, it's my toy. He can't touch it. Mwah. Grow up. Yet, Mr. McConnell is convinced that a deal isn't hopeless. He mentions that one time in uh, Mr. Obama's first term, the Democrats and Republicans reached an agreement. I was the one who personally negotiated with Joe Biden in the extension agreement. I was uh, in the extension of the current tax rates after the 2011 midterm elections when the president said, I'm for it. 40 Senate Democrats voted to extend the Bush tax cuts, which leads me to my point. Without the president, we can't fix the problem. What kind of a deal would Mr. McConnell accept? The Senate's top priority is long-term entitlement reform. Changing the eligibility for entitlements is only one thing that can possibly fix the country long-term. He wants means testing for programs like Medicare. Warren Buffett's always complaining about not paying enough in taxes. He says, what really irritates me is I'm paying for his Medicare. That's how it works. And we're, I'm going to be paying for yours. So stop bitching about it. That's how the system works. The senator will also press for the Medicaid reforms, such as block granting money to the states. Uh, that are a part of Republican Paul Ryan's budget. But Mr. McConnell doubts the Democrats will ever go for the Ryan idea for Medicare premium support, allowing seniors to shop around for their preferred health insurance plan. That's because his deal doesn't take into account the very realistic increase in annual rates. It just gives them a flat $6,000 check saying, shop for the best service, you're on your own. And if the country wanted that, they probably would have reformed it before uh, the 70s, when it came into being. 
Um, the $16 trillion question, how much is Mr. McConnell willing to give on taxes in exchange for those entitlement reforms? The country doesn't need a tax increase. We have a spending problem. But they control a big part of the government, and they insist on taxes. I'll be willing to pay the ransom or higher taxes if I thought we were going to get the hostage out. But that he means every dollar of taxes would have to be matched by a dollar of entitlement savings. How do you ensure that kind of a deal doesn't lead to immediate higher taxes and disappearing spending cuts? It's a good complaint, Mr. McConnell acknowledges. In the past, when we've gone along with the revenue, the taxes happened, and the cuts never did. He believes that if you change the eligibility for entitlements, those changes will stick, as with an agreement that Reagan and Tip O'Neill made to raise the age for Social Security that happened 25 years ago. Any tax entitlement deal would largely leave unresolved the newest budget-busting entitlements, Obamacare. It's the single worst piece of legislation that's been passed in modern times, Mr. McConnell says, and the single biggest step in the direction of Europeanizing the country. It can't possibly work. Democrats don't understand that now, he continues, but people are going to be coming at us in hordes, asking for us to revise it, or revisit it, and fix the mounting problems. Well, you have a problem there, uh, McConnell, because even John Boehner said that it's a done deal, and they're not going to go after it. And realistically when we're 36th in healthcare of industrial modern countries then we do have a problem with our current system and it doesn't work because it is a money pit obamacare as you call it is a way for people to be held responsible for their own care and not have everyone else pick up their dime and it also allows people to get insurance ignoring those uh, sort of um, uh, restrictions that were on it, like if you ha have cancer, pre-existing condition, then you can't get insurance with X company. Well, now they have to cover you. We have to remember that insurance companies are businesses and they're looking to save money and make money. And taking care of sick people doesn't do that. So if we force them to do that, and people are forced to pay for the care that they're given... Everyone's being responsible, and we can continue moving on as a grown adult society. What they don't realize is that we have the most socialized medicine ever right now, and it's called the emergency room, and everyone gets a free ticket there. Just walk in, say you don't have insurance, and they still have to take care of you. Um, okay, so he says that towns he visits in Kentucky, the healthcare providers who are dealing with patients on a daily basis, big hospitals, rural hospitals, nonprofits are all freaked out about virtually every aspect of the Medicare cuts that affect today's seniors and today's providers. Seven of nine justices on the Supreme Court said the Medicaid part of it is genuinely optional. Um, Smart states won't take this additional burden. Employers are dropping their coverage. He predicts the law will come apart on its own. The other unresolved mega issue is what to do about the scheduled sequester cuts of the $110 billion for 2013, half coming from defense and half from discretionary domestic programs. Much like the president, he wants to shut it off, but with a caveat. I don't think we should just forget about the spending reductions we promised. We ought to achieve exactly the same amount of spending reductions, with targeted cuts that the two parties have agreed already to. When pressed on whether he could live with the sequester, as some Republican budget hawks have suggested, the center dismisses that drive-off-the-cliff option as Thelma and Louise economics. Why are Democrats like Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid so obsessed with raising our highest marginal income tax rates? You have to understand, they really don't believe that raising taxes hurts the economy, Mr. McConnell said. They think rates can go much higher. 
what they are seeing is a European, I'm sorry, Europeanization of the U.S. economy. That's funny because, again, again, they're trying to redefine economics and history. We had booms in our history, and they were with much higher tax rates. The greatest economic boom of all of American history was after World War II, when, where in some cases it was 90% tax rates. So you cannot say, and obviously no one wants that, <laughs> no one wants that, but just to prove the point that yes, raising taxes helps the economy. And we're not even talking about raising taxes, we're talking getting rid of temporary tax cuts. It's not raising it, it's returning it to what it was before that was agreed to by the reduction. Like they said, we're going to reduce it, but we don't want to do it permanently because it's not a good thing, so we're going to put an end to it. And then when that end came close, oh, we can't raise taxes. You're not raising taxes! You're keeping to what you agreed to! But Obama folded on that, so they're doing it again. And then they put in restrictions that were insane. Talking about insane tax or um, uh, uh, economic cuts in places where no one wants them in order to force them to come to an agreement. And we are there. This is the fiscal cliff that we're at. And if we have people like Turtle Man McConnell, who, or, or any of the Tea Party, because McConnell wasn't even in favor, really, of Tea Party uh, politics until the Tea Party came into power and took over the Republican Party, or at least put their balls in their purse. Um, if we have people like that, then we are going to have some real, real economic issues. But uh, I don't think we're going to have that problem. I think they're going to realize that it's insane and that it, in fact, is a mandate by evidence of this election. And whether McConnell wants to admit it or not in this article is irrelevant. Because believe it or not, he's not needed for anything to get done. And that's proven by his entire time in Congress not getting anything done. Expecting the president to do his own job. Let the president do the president's job. McConnell does McConnell's job. Come up with the solution, asshole. Stop pointing at someone else as the excuse for you not doing your damn job. Act like an adult. H how hard is that? <sighs> but don't Messrs. Obama and Reed think uh, they've just been given a mandate to raise those tax rates? Yes, well, we Republicans in the House and Senate think we have a voter mandate not to raise taxes. What imaginary world are you living in? Despite this deep ideological divide and the bad blood between Mr. Obama and Congress and uh, congressional Republicans, it isn't hard to envision a deal on taxes and spending cuts that both sides can live with. All of this will depend on Mr. Obama's willingness to stand down on the tax rate increases, which Republicans rightly regard as, excuse me, a political poison pill and a jobs killer. If the president does sit down and negotiate in good faith, Mr. McConnell sees positive effects in the Wall Street and overall economy because Washington will have convinced the rest of the world and the financial community that the Americans are serious about fixing their fundamental problem and we're not going the way of Greece and Italy and Spain with those trillion dollar deficits. And what if the president insists on raising tax rates? Expect a principled stand by the minority leader and his fellow Republicans. He's got to understand he doesn't fully control the Senate. He doesn't control the House at all. In order to accomplish things for this country, he will need to work with us. As Mr. McConnell walked me to the door, he adds, you know, he doesn't own the place. And uh, as closing of this article, and it has been very long, thank you for sitting through it, he does now. He does now. You don't have to recognize it because he doesn't need you. 
All right, so let's do this other article. I don't think it's going to be as long. And again, thank you for sitting through this. This is the New York Times, Finding the Courage to Reveal a Fetish. And I have to say right here off the bat, I'm almost at the hour mark and we haven't even gone to down to the crossroads. So this is going to be a long episode. So I hope you're uh, okay sitting through it here. David doesn't remember this conversation, but I won't forget. Nice belt, I said, gesturing to the red canvas belt around his waist. We had met a few weeks earlier through a Stanford student group. He was quiet and broad-shouldered. I liked him right away. I have a leather one, too, he replied, smiling. I was thunderstruck. For as long as I remember, I've been fairly obsessed with spanking. This obsession felt impossible to share, so I was always hungry for cues that someone could relate. David's remark was innocent, of course, but I was so desperate for understanding that I imagined connections everywhere. You're in trouble, a friend once declared, and when I playfully stole his textbook during a date. Really? I asked, hope rising. He started tickling me. The relationship was doomed. I had long assumed my life partner would share my kink. At 17, I met my first boyfriend who was living abroad. He was 24 and so comfortable with his sexual identity that on our second date, he asked whether I had ever received a severe spanking. His question took my breath away, and our next 18 months were essentially an extension of the first electrified moment. By the time we broke up, I had come to accept that a shared fetish was a necessary part of any future relationship. But David, it turned out, is vanilla, the word that spanking community uses to describe people who don't share our quirk. I was disappointed, but it was too late. I had already fallen in love with him. My dilemma was clear. How could I describe my desires to David when I can hardly confess them to myself? Spanking fetishists don't have a tradition of coming out. The comparisons to child abuse and spousal battery are inevitable, upsetting, and often impossible to dispel. So it's easiest to keep our interests private. In 1996, Daphne Merkin examined her own fascination with spanking in Unlikely Obsession for the New Yorker. Her confession raised such a controversy that it's still being mentioned this year when one writer concluded that Takeaway was, something is wrong with Daphne Merkin. Even popular books and movies link erotic spanking to severe psychological trauma. In Fifty Shades of Grey, Christian Grey's passion for erotic pain is a result of extreme childhood abuse. In 2002 film, Secretary suggests that the main character's spanking obsession is merely a preferable alternative to self-mutilation. So what's a nice girl, who also happens to love being spanked, supposed to think? More pressingly, what is she supposed to say to her brand new boyfriend? At 20, I confronted the situation indirectly. I went to a college party, steeled my nerves with cocktails, and breezily told David's roommate that I was kind of into S&M. It worked. A few nights later, David asked, Are you, like, into pain? Um, I said, blushing. Yes. It wasn't quite true. I'm not into pain. I'm into being spanked. But it seems like a safe first step. Over the last decade, it has become fashionable in certain millennial circles to announce an interest in bondage or other forms of sadomasochism. The implications are often tame. A couple, de- uh, a couple buys handcuffs, experiments with hot wax, and tosses in the occasional spanking. So when David heard I was kind of into S&M, he interpreted the code exactly how I had expected. From time to time, he spanked me during sex. This was a step in the right direction, but it wasn't the whole story. While there's a strong erotic element to my kink, sex is merely a side dish to a more absorbing entree of the spanking itself. It's hard to admit this. A few playful swats during sex seem fun, while serious spankings seem damaged and perverse. After years of pretending I was interested only in the occasional erotic swat, I finally had to admit it to myself. 
Although spankings do satisfy a strong sexual need, they satisfy an equally strong psychological one. On my computer, hidden inside a series of password-protected folders, is a folder labeled, David, if you find this, please don't look inside. It has my favorite spanking stories I've collected online. A small fraction are what you would imagine. A man spanks a woman, they, and then they have sex. In the vast majority, though, both characters are men. Having a platonic relationship and no sexual or romanticism is involved. This paradox that my kink is simultaneously sexual and asexual is one of its most frustrating and intriguing aspects. Perhaps I've been so uncomfortable with my sexuality for so long that scenes with two men where there isn't any obvious stand-ins for me were easier to digest. Perhaps I'll never fully um, understand. My kink developed early. As a child, I poured over any book that mentioned spanking, paddles, or thrashing. Tom Sawyer went through many reads, as did, believe it or not, key dictionary entries. Look up titillating definitions is so common among developing spankophiles that it's almost a rite of passage. By high school, I started to explore my feelings in more public ways. When my best friend and I wrote short stories together, I exercised my nastiest fantasies by subjecting our characters to ritualized punitive beatings. With classmates, I had awkwardly introduced the topic with invented reference to a news story and a town they wanted to outlaw spanking. What do you think of that, I'd ask, straining to sound socially casual. But when I started college and got my first personal computer, everything changed. In online anonymity, I found a community that shared my interests and insecurities. I wasn't looking for partners to play with, as it's called. Spanking, to me, is as intimate as sex, and not to be shared with someone I didn't love. I just wanted a forum to express my otherwise unexpressible side. What'd you do before the internet, I asked a woman in an online forum. The brave ones look for personal ads, she replied. The rest of us were lonely. For the next several years, I settled into sexual detente. David, under the impression that I was kind of in S&M, satisfied my physical desires, almost. Online strangers satisfied my desires for community and understanding, almost. And I stopped feeling like a freak, almost. Almost, I decided, would have to be enough. I often tried to pinpoint the origins of my obsession. I'd been exposed to enough pop psychology to recognize the obvious first question. Yes, I was spanked as a child, but infrequently and never in an extreme degree. Many of my childhood friends experienced some form of corporal punishment and emerged into adulthood unburdened with daily thoughts of the subject. For a few months, I buried myself in psychological explanations for why someone might enjoy being spanked. Pain causes an endorphin rush, which can be pleasurable. The process also causes blood to rush to the pelvic region, which mimics sexual arousal. This is biologically normal, I told myself. Totally normal. Eventually, I gave up. It was exhausting and depressing to try to justify my obsession. Moreover, it wasn't working. The solution, I realized, had been sleeping next to me for almost six years. David is my best friend, my fiancé, and my champion. If anyone can convince me I'm not damaged, it's David. He makes me stronger than I can't do it on my own. But how could I ever express it at all? My history, insecurities, secrets, and hopes? I'm a writer, so I wrote it down, and I translated my feelings and memories into these words. I took control of a desire that had controlled me for most of my life. I felt comfortable, confident, even celebratory. For about three days, these ancient insecurities, as they always do, crept back. 
coming out of the closet isn't the right expression. We're not in closets that can be left in a single step as the door clicks shut behind. Coming out of the house might be better, or coming out of the labyrinth. In our different ways, we're all just wanting honesty and intimacy, right? We're looking for the people who will love us even when it's difficult, or uncomfortable, or painful. I always shared my writing with David, and this time would be no different. This is how this is hard to show you, I said as I slipped my laptop across the bed. Also, I'm worried that my paragraph structures is confusing. As he read each page, I felt the clicks of a dozen doors closing behind me. I love you, David said when he finished. You're so brave, and there's nothing wrong with your paragraph structure. Click. This is an amazing article. And this is what I was speaking to earlier about healthy relationships. I mean, she is obviously in an amazing relationship with David that she is comfortable enough to finally be honest with him. And let's be honest, he probably would have been okay with it if she would have brought it out much earlier on in their relationship. Because when you when you care about someone, you want to give them what they desire. Like, in its core. And yeah, there's there's um, selfish reasons for that, but it's also because you you care about that person and you want them to be happy. And if this is what it takes for them to be happy, well, then you better learn how to spank <laughs> in this case. And, you know, this parallel is just my own little kinks and quirks, which I'm not going to go into here because it's private. But it took me uh, close to a decade of marriage before I came out to what I really was looking for sexually. And it was in stark contrast to what my wife was expecting and initially comfortable with. But she's an amazing woman and she was willing to um, give what I was looking for a try. And she, you know, it, it ended up where now we are, you know, happily involved in a very healthy sex life in the way that both of us want it to be and so that we're both happy with it um and you know one thing about sex is it can always be better you can always sort of and it's sort of that ratcheting up idea and i don't know if this is a healthy view of it to be quite frank but i believe that it can always ratchet up a little bit so for me i'm happy now but it's going to I'm going to keep pushing that envelope. And for as long as she's willing to go with me on that journey, you know, that's great. But if there ever comes a time when she says, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this anymore and I'm, I'm not going to do this. Well, I love her enough that I'm going to accept that and it's going to suck for me. But, you know, it, it's that's a reality. I'm willing to make that sacrifice because I, I'd love her for more than just sex. And... Uh, you know, you have to be willing to do that if you're going to be open and honest. Uh, it's just, it's integral to being an adult, man. So anyway, yeah, the really long Infernal Informant, really long. I'm already over an hour, and uh, let's go ahead and just jump right into Down to the Crossroads. I don't want to rush it because it is a really, really great episode. See you there. Ah, right, there you will. Sure you want to stay out in this blackout? Sure is dark tonight. Thank you for the ride, sir. I think I'll be fine. See yourself! What are you doing out here? 
I'm, I'm headed down to the crossroads. crossroads. <laughs> Wait, Miss. You can't be. You're the, you're the devil. devil. But you're, you're beautiful. beautiful. Just sign here. Oh my God. Hi, welcome to another Down to the Crossroads. I'm being joined by Aaron again. How are you, my dear? I'm doing well. How are you? Not too shabby. Have you had a, a good, I don't know, th- two weeks, three <laughs> weeks since we last chatted? It hadn't been too bad, I guess. All things considered. Yeah, all things considered, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, this time I actually do have a, a glass of wine. Do you? I, of course, do. Yes. And it is on. <laughs> we <Yes>. are ready. <laughs> cool. All right, so what do you have for us this month? Well, today is Veterans Day mm-hmm. here in America, and I thought I might be a little topical with the today's episode. We're going to listen to some songs that have something to do with war and being a veteran and the travails associated with that. So I got three songs for you that I think are pretty on topic. Nice. Nice. All right, so yeah. I'm looking at the list here, and, and what's the first one we're going to go with? We're going to listen to Sonny Boy Williamson do Win the War Blues. Cool. All right, well, let's, uh, let's kick this thing off. Let's jump right into it. So, what I love about this song is how absolutely gung-ho he is about going to fight the Japs. <laughs> a lot of the songs, a couple of the other songs that I play for you, they're not so excited about the whole idea of going to fight, but uh, Sonny Boy here is pretty, pretty excited about it. I love the piano. It's, just, it's got this great feel to it. Yeah, it's almost ragtimey. Mm-hmm. That, I believe, is John Davis on piano. But Sonny Boy is pretty um, well known for his, for being probably the first and most influential harmonica player of the pre-war blues era. Now there's not to be confused with Sonny Boy Williamson, too, who was also a great harmonica player, but he came later in the blues, and he actually went on tour like with the animals, and he did, he's great, he's, you know, I don't want to dismiss his influence on the blues, but this is the original Sonny Boy Williamson. Yeah, I do love that, those harmonic interjections. Yeah. Do you know what year we're, we're listening to right now? Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, if I had to guess, I would. Gosh, I hate to guess actually. Yeah. 40, 44, I would say. Okay. 44, 45. Yeah, I ask because I think maybe uh, the excitement of, of going and winning the war uh, then makes much more sense than. <laughs> Like nowadays, I mean, we're so disc. I mean, right now we are in the middle of a war. Like we are a nation Uh at war, and no one really seems to know or really concern themselves with it. But back then, I mean, it was it was a national concern. It was pride. It was excitement, and you could do no wrong as America. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think there's much more cynicism now and much more skepticality involved with the the war. And I don't know if it's just that these sort of things stood the test of time. You know, no one talks about anyone who was skeptical. I mean, there was like such a huge pressure on people to be patriotic back then that I don't think we see today at all. Um, that's something that always sort of bothered me. Uh, I mean, I was never really patriotic. I, I only was in Boy Scouts for maybe two years or something, and they tried to instill it in you. And like my my father and my stepfather were both uh, veterans, uh, decorated, and my grandfather. And so there's this, this sort of family history. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't know if it was the the baby boomer generation that stopped that whole process of 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 pride in where you come from and pride in your country, but yeah, it was I'd say really, almost certainly it was them. <laughs> yeah, it was just really, really weird growing up and seeing the grandparents with so much uh, mm-hmm. just affection toward the, the idea of it more than anything else, yeah. just what it what but, it meant in, in you know feeling. I would also argue though that there was a lot of shame involved too. I mean, I know my grandfather was in the Korean War. He was actually. Uh, uh, in the Army Air Corps, right before they became the Air Force, mm-hmm. and uh, he never really talked about the war. You know, there was almost not sh- not shame necessarily, but sort of a he just really didn't want to talk about what he saw there. You know, and I think you know there was a lot of pride involved, but there was also a little bit of maybe shame or maybe just stoicism or you know just sort of closed mouth, you know. I do a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think there's a lot of that. I, I mean, even nowadays, it's it's that that sort of notion. At least this is how I look at it. That there's this. So I, I think there's this sort of idea of what it means as we understand it to be a human being in our world. We're so far detached from those those primal expressions like physical combat and war. Sure. Once you're thrust into it, uh, certainly for our grandparents and on down the ancestral line there was no frame of reference for it, you know? And, and I think that it, it not only scribed into their brains this this visceral exist, like notion of existence that no one else shared. So when mm-hmm. they came back home, like how could they talk about what they've done or what they've seen and, or what they've seen other people do or just the insanity, the madness that they had experienced? Mm-hmm. I, I know like my stepdad, he was uh, in Vietnam and went back a number of tours voluntarily. Mm-hmm. For really insane reasons, which maybe someday we'll get into, but um, just for this, like I, I never really knew anything growing up about his experience, and it, it's not until um, you know these past two, maybe three years that he started to finally open up about some of the experiences that he has oh, had. Really? And yeah, so it's it's completely understanding, and, and that was the Vietnam, which was an insanity. Mm. But you go back to mm-hmm. the Korean, or you go back to uh, World War Two, and it, it's mm-hmm. almost exponential in its craziness mm-hmm. as it gets, you know, that that further deeper because understanding, you don't even really know what you're doing. All you know is take that yeah. hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it, you know the the wars have gotten so different. You know the the progress of combat is, you know, when you look at like, you know, in the trenches and the world wars, you know, people were actually fighting like hand to hand, and yeah. I know that still happens to some extent today, but it's not nearly to the extent that people were looking, you know, in people's eyes as they were killing them, you know, and I think that that probably plays into how, you know, um, quietly that sort of angst was kept to themselves and yeah. that 
that period. You know, my grandfather, of course, he wouldn't want to tell me about what it was like to kill a person, you know, you know it's something he would keep to himself and he would keep away from his wife, you know, and his children, his grandchildren. But, um, you know, the, the effects of war are seen on, at every level, um, in every war, you know, but it's just different. <laughs> and it is, it's, it's very easy for artists, really talented blues artists or any genre for that matter, mm -hmm. to sit back in the home front and, oh, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. when, and, and this is one of those situations where if you were, uh, a minority, you were almost shielded from, from service unless almost, you were yeah. like forced drafted and, and sort of right. thrown in the first line. So, I mean, it, you know, in some of these cases, when, when slavery was still uh, an issue and, and then there was war, you really were not up there all that often. So, so it, in, in, I'm making a lot mm -hmm. of leaps here. Well, but... it's interesting. You know, it's interesting to think of the, uh, <laughs> the implications of what that meant. Like uh, during, the, you know, the First and Second World War, when the blacks weren't, you know, really considered citizens, mm -hmm. but they were certainly out there fighting they were drafted um the like roosevelt established that peacetime draft in like the 40s at some point i don't know i don't know i'm no good with history but <laughs> <laughs> my understanding is you know there are a lot of blacks fighting mm -hmm. um and you know think of the implications of that what they're dealing with not only are they sort of hated by their enemy of course but they're also sort of hated by their fellow servicemen you know yeah and... they're they're still not people you know they're not accepted there's still segregation there's still discrimination you know they're they were definitely segregated in that um you know the units themselves were there were black units and white units you know and they weren't allowed to fight and think about what that must have felt like for them you know they're out there fighting for this country that they probably don't love you know yeah. their patriotism is probably a whole lot different than the white regiment's patriotism you know um they're almost being forced to fight in a lot of um situations but it, you know it's interesting to think about i'm not a historian so i, <laughs> I won't speak on that very much yeah. but no I, I, I love that idea of it because it, it brings up just the complexity that they have mm -hmm. to they're literally forced to i mean we can ignore shit like that if we don't like to mm -hmm. think about it they were mm -hmm. forced to experience it firsthand and that's i mean that's that's a huge huge part of uh probably where they got their that, and this sounds really <laughs> fucking racist here, but where they got their um, passion for music and the expression through music, uh, gospel yeah. and the blues and jazz certainly helped define it. So, you, you know, it's not surprising that someone that has to has to deal with emotional um, uh, discord on a daily level, dealing with citizenship and, and rights and uh humanity uh that they wouldn't you know it's shocking it, it would be shocking if they didn't turn to music or or, or some form of expression that was yeah you know a, a way for them to get out so sure yeah wow that was well let's uh <laughs> you're all pull it back in adam pull it back in. <laughs> all right so we'll, what's next then well let's play the next one here and this is this guy blind willie johnson mm -hmm. he's gonna do a song called when the war was on and uh let's start it now Alright. I think the first thing that will strike most people about this song is his voice, you know? That voice. <laughs> oh, who's, who's his company? 
You know, I don't actually know. I should have looked that up, but I didn't. I didn't bother. It doesn't matter. Let's just... <laughs> He's the star. Yes, right. No, uh, he's an interesting fellow. He's, you know, he was very religious, and he was mostly a gospel blues singer. Uh, and uh, that voice is just incredible. But what was really interesting was the, is the way that he was blinded. He was blinded because he was legitimately blind. Um, he, he, I guess it was his father and his stepmother. His father caught his stepmother stepping out with another man, and uh, they had a fight. She threw some lye water at the father, but it kind of missed and hit poor old Willie in the face, and that blinded him. I think he was seven years old when that happened. So, so his dad, you know, being um, the opportunist that he was, apparently put him out on the street and made him play, you know, taught him guitar, made him play out on the streets for money, make himself useful. <laughs> yeah. Now this uh, this song's still a little bit patriotic, you know, um, a little bit, but it, you can definitely hear um, in the lyrics, you know, he definitely. Put pit sort of the white against the black. Like he definitely sees that issue. I'm stunned. I, I think nowadays, if, if the record, if he he approached like a record label, they would just toss him out. Like no fucking way. Your voice is yeah. It's far too gruff. Yeah. Well, he, I guess he um, proved himself out on the streets. But that voice is pretty incredible. Is it? Makes you wonder if his, um, you know, throat wasn't damaged in that eye attack. Sounds like it, but I, I didn't see any, you know, any documentation on that. But it sure sounds like it. I'm almost sort of leaning the, the notion that this girl is helping make this song, you know, as great as it is. Oh, absolutely, yeah. She does add a lot to it. I wish I had found out who this was. I mean, if if it was just him, just sort of gruffing along. And, well, it's very much, you know, gospel-sounding song, sort of call and response, you know, and, uh, you know, like a preacher and the chorus sort of backing each other up, and that's, you know, that was his thing. He was very religious and really wanted to play the blues, but it just kind of ended up that way. He's basically just bitching about how shitty life is when, you know, every, you know everything's being rationed and everything's expensive, so... Oh, I dug that. That was awesome. That's pretty great, yeah. That was called When the War is On. When the War is On. That's awesome. Oh, here's another little compare and contrast thing that I, this wine is making me speak <laughs> the, the sacrifice that they had to make in the day for the nation going at war compared to now. I mean, you know, like like I said a little bit earlier that, you know, we're a nation at war. We don't fucking, we don't know. Taxes aren't higher because of that. In fact, they're dropping for some insanity. <laughs> no one except for the soldiers' families themselves even give a damn. Like, everyone's so excited. What? They, they, they <laughs> made the iPad smaller? Wow! Like, that is... Right. That's the important yeah. thing, not that your neighbor is getting shot at by right. some freaking terrorist. It's well, it, it's not here, you know. It doesn't. It's not in America. No one's fighting on American soil, so it's really easy to even forget that we're at war. Yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the drawbacks to our our sort of 
techno society. Because it's weird, because uh-huh. on one hand, we're literally taking the world and shrinking it into this sort of palm-sized device so that we can con- connect with anyone all around it, all the while completely ignoring the yeah. other people that are fighting for some manufactured reason and really, to what avail, like, to what point? Because, to what there, there, yeah. yeah, there's always going to be terrorism, and, and there's always mm-hmm. going to be... Uh, assholes hating other assholes because of their color or ethnicity mm-hmm. or you know some made-up religious reason uh-huh. and and yet still we we go through these motions as if it adds i don't know credit to our existence like I, i'm not entirely sure i understand the rationale oh i don't i certainly don't <laughs> and it's weird because in the same token mm-hmm. i think there is uh well when i was serving over in germany we mm-hmm. had um one of the uh, commanding generals uh, sort of addressed addressed the the battalion that I was in, and I didn't really understand it then, and I'm not entirely sure I understand it completely now. But he was saying, there comes a time when you stop and realize that when you're in the army and you say that you're a soldier, there's no value in it. But that's oh. one of the most honorable things that you can do in life. And a mm-hmm. lot of you here are doing this because you want to go to college or because you want to get off the streets mm-hmm. or because you had nothing sure. else in your life. But uh-huh. you don't realize how important or, or what it really means mm-hmm. until later in your life. When you... Exactly. I'm sure that's true. I think, you know, I, d- I have a lot of really good friends who served in the military and are serving and uh, spent many years doing it. And I don't think that they fully understood the implications of what they were doing until much later in life. I know a lot of them, you know, did go, you know, join up just to get out of the shitty situation they were in, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, very few. And I do not want to cast dispersions on anyone's character that's currently serving or has served or will serve. But, you know, oftentimes that is the case that people join you know, just for an education or just to get out of their shitty situation. Mm -hmm. But, but the truth of the matter is that while they're there, they're fucking in it. You know, there's no way to around it. You can't, you know, say, Hey, I don't feel like doing that because I'm just here for the college education. You know, you're still in it. You're still in the shit, you know, and, uh, maybe you don't appreciate it at the time, but you will, you do later and, and everyone else sort of does. Even, you know, I think that many people, uh, don't begrudge those kids that go in just, you know, for the education or for, you know, to get out of their shitty situation. They don't begrudge them that because they know that it's still a huge sacrifice, mm-hmm. you know, and you're still in da- danger. Mostly, you know, a lot of people are really in peril. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, one thing that I don't think people really take into account if they've never like known anyone or been involved themselves is that, you know, when you swear that oath to uh, serve mm-hmm. and protect the Constitution, you give up rights that everyone else has like you literally trade them in for for a a lot of heartache and pain that will eventually Mm -hmm. you know really mold you and define you as a human being but and pay off yeah yeah but Mm -hmm. unless you die but (laughs) or or get seriously wounded but i mean Mm -hmm. there's there's a genuine sacrifice even for those who haven't gone into combat and and Mm, that's one of those things that, that always sort of rubbed me the wrong way is that I was incredibly lucky never having gone into conflict, but mm-hmm. uh, by some uh, in America, when, when it comes to like Veterans Day, for example, and you say, yeah, I was a veteran. Oh, really? Well, what war did you go in? Oh, I right. actually wasn't in right. a war. And they're like, oh, well, then you're not really a veteran. It's like, motherfucker, right. you know, you don't really understand <laughs> <laughs> like what happened. There, you know, there is that distinction between like a veteran and then a war veteran, yeah. but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, there doesn't. 
and I see why the distinction is there, of course, mm -hmm. you know, they are different levels, but they're still sort, you know, you still served your country um, just because you weren't, you know, didn't fall into a time period where there was a war going on doesn't mean that you weren't ready to do that if called upon or, yeah, you know, or, or if that they didn't sacrifice and didn't train constantly yeah. to do that if called upon to. And, um, you know, one thing also, I was married to a man who was in the Air Force. He's still in the Air Force gonna be in the air force forever as far as i know <laughs> but uh you know you know the women and men who are married to yeah. people in the service they also make these huge sacrifices and you know i i know that being married to the military is is a huge responsibility because everything that i did was i was attached to his social security number you know mm -hmm. i couldn't break the law because if i did it was on him and that was a that was a huge responsibility that i made you know a huge sacrifice that i made to him and to you know i would like to think you know the greater you know greater good of the american blah 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 you know yeah and <laughs> it does i mean it is mm -hmm. one of those things where it, it's a sacrifice for you as well because you know like you said you're sort of tethered to this mm. experience that he's having and and you are forced to pick up the slack for oh, him. Yeah. So you have mm -hmm. to. And this is something that I, I'm not entirely sure women get enough credit for. And I say women, but in this case, I mean spouses. Mm -hmm. Where you have to be able to, to be their support system yeah. completely. You have to be able to take care of them when they're too exhausted to do anything. I mean, yeah. when they come home from training exercises, they don't want to fucking sweep mm -hmm. and clean and no. brush. I mean... <laughs> It's it, yeah. it's really I mean you have to do literally everything that normally would be divided between a relationship. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, yeah, that is a huge, huge sacrifice there too. Which is probably the biggest reason I'm divorced now. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. <laughs> no, I, no, not really. <laughs> I hated that toilet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but on that note, let's move on, shall we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> to our next song. Now, this final song is definitely the most. Um, critical of the whole situation in the whole war situation and as far as i know none of these three men that i've played none of them ever served in the military as far as i know mm -hmm. and i'm sure i'll be corrected if i'm wrong but um you know so none of these songs this song especially is not autobiographical as far as i know um let's listen to it because okay. it's pretty phenomenal so now this one's blood ran like wine <laughs> Which is a pretty evocative title, I'd say. Mm. I love that playful step in. Well, standing wide yeah. Above my knee. Now this is Johnny Shines, and no one's ever heard of him. <laughs> you know, he's not very well known in the blues well, circles, but uh, he should be. He was a traveling companion well, Robert Johnson, which I think probably explains why he isn't as more better known is because he was kind of living in that shadow of it's Robert Johnson. Shadow. Exactly, yeah. And and this is actually a record cover that I'm looking at. He's got this really great fro and oh, yeah. nice little chipmunk cheeks. I really dig his style too, the socks. I bet he's got the like supporters on those socks too. <laughs> Garters yeah. going, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. So it isn't until sort of the, you know, he's, you know, he's praying to the Lord, he's up to his knees in water, and, and it isn't until toward the end of the song that it reveals that the, you know, while it's not him, but, it, you know, the hero of the song is in uh, fighting in Vietnam. Oh, huh. 
Which is, you know. I don't think I've ever heard of a song, a blues Probably. song about Vietnam. There's actually quite a few, and I really? I would have played more, um, but I didn't want it to be, you know, Vietnam centric. But you know, think about it, like, who, what other war would they really be singing about? That was sort of the, the era of the best blues, you know, was sort of during the Vietnam War. There's a lot, you know, there's some Korean War, there's some World War II. Yeah, that's interesting you say that, because when I think of the blues, I certainly wrap my head around you know, the 40s and 50s more than I do the 60s. Yeah, well, the pre-war blues are the blues that you and I have mostly been talking about, That and that's pre-World War II. Um, so, but everyone after that was very influenced by, like, the Vietnam War. There's like, you can find quite a lot of new songs about the Vietnam War. And, yeah, like I said, I could have I could have played more. There's a really great one that I left off of, um, ah, uh, shoot, now I can't remember it, but <laughs> I'll post it on the Facebook page, but... Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's just such a great line. It's so provocative. And that's that. So, yeah, but... You know, Johnny Shines, I think more people should look into because he was definitely, you know, one of the better blues musicians at the time, but he was just so overshadowed by Robert Johnson, understandably. But Yeah. Well, Dan, that, that, is, that is great. I, I absolutely adore these, um, well, I guess I guess they're episodes, but I, I love these uh, moments where uh, we can share these blues songs. Uh, yeah. Stuff like this, like, I never would have heard of, like, cause I, I wouldn't have even have thought to look for someone mm-hmm. like Johnny Shines. So, I mean, yeah. uh, that... <laughs> that's really what I do with my time <laughs> is sit around and research blues songs. Just clicking through like different. Yeah. It's amazing. YouTube is a, an amazing thing. I would, I found so much great music just, you know, clicking on the suggested next songs. Yeah. I don't believe I'd ever heard Johnny, that Johnny Shine song until today. Honestly. Well, I think that was a, a really great Down to the Crossroads Veterans Day episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really fucking cool. And it was certainly much smoother than our last one. <laughs> Anything so, is smoother than the last one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, okay, so what what do you think for an episode title here? Oh, uh, gee whiz, that's a good question. I would love to do something with that Blood Ran Like Wine I think that's so so evocative. Maybe we could I'm, I'm make that, that work somehow. Yeah, absolutely. I love his look. Like I can't get over it. Yeah. He's just like this. <laughs> I would never think that if I looked at him, I'd be like, oh, he's he's a he's a pastry maker, or <laughs> like you can tell he loves his food, and he's got this sort of goofy look. At, at least in the photo that we're looking at on his face. In most photos I saw of him, this really? is, that's the case. Yeah. I just love it. Like, <laughs> when I think of a blues man, I, I do sort of have this mental image of that sort of Robert Johnson look. Yeah, Like, sure. just in my head. And that's really stereotypical and not <laughs> true at all. And that's so it's always it's, <laughs> it's always cool when you see someone that sort of breaks from that mold a little bit. I mean, he's still got his suit and he's still, mm-hmm. you know, dressed in, in the... Well, I yeah. guess for the day it would be dressed to the nines. I mean, it's you know he's, uh-huh. <laughs> he's suiting it up, and that's something you don't see nowadays anyway. Yeah, yeah. All right, very cool. Well, Aaron, oh. thank you very much. And to the audience, if you want to connect with Aaron, uh, you can do so with the Facebook page down to the crossroads. She is always posting some really, really amazing blues tracks there, and uh, 
today actually you had a number of really fucking good ones like yeah those are some of the ones that didn't make it to on the playlist today nice so that's uh, facebook.com slash down to the crossroads and you can also reach out to her on twitter at chelsea girl 19 great episode thank you so much Aaron. thank you hail satan hail satan that's gonna do it for another show I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. The holidays are rapidly approaching, and 9cents has provided. From Asp Apparel's official 9cents clothing and accessories found at aspapparel.com to my children's book, How Crow Got a Scareback, found at crow.adambcampbell.com. To my new project, 9cents presents Satanists on Satanic Cinema, found at satanistsonsatanicsinema.com. What could be better than the holidays with 9cents? Spread the word, help support the show, and make a statement without saying a word. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, so look for us there. You can, excuse me, you can subscribe to 9 cents via iTunes by searching 9 cents and don't forget to leave a rating or comment if you do. Thank you to everyone who has. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, the source for online satanic media. Once again, thank you for joining me, and as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, and until next week, Hail Satan!